Hello and welcome to Pieces of History, I'm Colin McGrath. Joining me this week is Professor James Olson. Professor Olson served for over 30 years in the Directorate of Operations of the Central Intelligence Agency, mostly overseas in clandestine operations. He was very kind to discuss his entry into the organisation, the current threats that the United States face, his love of the Russian language, what it takes to become a spy, and the relationship between the CIA, the FBI and the NSA. I hope you enjoy. Normally I kick off um, an episode with the question, can you tell me a bit about yourself? But I suppose in this instance, we're actually here to talk, to, to talk about your career in the CIA. So I suppose, can you tell me a bit about your background and how did you end up working for the agency in the first place? My story of the CIA is an unlikely one because I was raised in a small town in Iowa in the middle of the heartland. I never would have dreamed of this kind of career. I was on a different path. I studied mathematics and economics at the university. Then I went into the United States Navy. I served as an officer for four years aboard guided missile destroyers and frigates. I loved the Navy. I seriously thought about staying in, but finally decided I wanted to go back home. I wanted to go back to Iowa. So I left the Navy and I applied for law school at the University of Iowa, was accepted. And that was my plan. That was my dream at the time. I wanted to get my law degree, practice law in a small town in Iowa. I think that would have been a nice life, but it was not to be because in my last year of law school, I received a mysterious phone call from someone who started off by saying, Mr. Olson, we think we have a career opportunity that might be of interest to you. And that was a CIA calling. And that led to a series of secret trips to Washington and meetings in safe houses and interviews, aptitude testing, physical fitness tests, medical exams, psychological screening, whole series of polygraph exams, background investigations. And at the end of all that, which I survived somehow, I was offered a position in what we call the clandestine service, the Directorate of operations, the undercover espionage and covert action arm of the CIA. I was attracted to that kind of a career. I, I think developed a bug for service to country while I was in the Navy. I found it very satisfying and I ended up having a 31-year undercover career at the CIA doing espionage and covert action. A bonus to going to the CIA was I met my wife Meredith there and so we became a husband and wife CIA team and served together overseas for all those years. Well, that's fantastic. What a, what a brilliant story. Um, so they just approached you out of the blue, like you didn't sign up for any anything at all? It was just like a cold call almost? It was a cold call. I didn't know how it worked back then, but of course I do now. Hmm. And the CIA does have spotters around the country, particularly on college campuses. And when we find people like that, usually professors, we clear them and we brief them on what we're looking for. If they see a man or woman, usually a student who has the right stuff, in their opinion, they pass that name to us and we make a cold approach to the students. We never identify the spotter mm -hmm. because let's face it, on most campuses, it wouldn't be good for your academic reputation to be known as the CIA spotter on campus. Mm -hmm. That's what happened to me. And to this day, I don't know who my spotter was. I've got some suspects on the faculty of the College of Law at the University of Iowa, but to this day, I don't know. 
whoever it was, I am grateful because I never would have thought of this career on my own. So like you said as well, you had a 31 year career and primarily it was in counterintelligence. So just in, in case people aren't too familiar what that term means, can you, can you give me a, a brief synopsis of what counterterrorism really, what it stands for? Well, counterintelligence really refers to all the measures that any nation takes to protect its citizens, its technologies, its databases from the operations of foreign intelligence services. And it is a very serious undertaking because we in the United States have been under assault from foreign intelligence services, particularly coming after our technology. So we need good counterintelligence to thwart those activities. So if I just move on a wee bit, um, Jim. You say in the first line of your book, To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence. So few Americans realize the extent to which foreign intelligence services are stealing our most important secrets right under our noses. And you also go on to say that America is hemorrhaging its vital secrets too. So can you just expand a bit on that? And how, how little do the American public know about this? I've never seen anything like it. In my long experience, we have never been subjected to such an assault on our secrets and our technology, our databases than we are right now. I don't think the American people are aware of that. It does not get very publicized. Our world is a mysterious world, basically hidden from the public. If the American people knew, for example, the extent to which the Chinese alone are stealing our secrets and our technology, they'd be outraged and they'd demand action. Unfortunately, most people don't have any idea I think that they believe that the threat is probably exaggerated, but I can tell you as a counterintelligence professional that it is not. What is going on now is unprecedented. The Russians were bad enough, and they're still there. They still conduct espionage against the United States and other countries at very high levels. But the Chinese are operating at a magnitude and a pervasiveness that we've never seen from any service before. It is enormous the activity that we're seeing from from Chinese intelligence services. And I suppose, Jim, I, 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 suppose, I hope you don't mind if I just kind of go back a bit. Whenever you first started your career, obviously counterintelligence and the digital, digital world wasn't a thing. It was purely analog. Who were the main threats whenever you first entered the agency? When I joined the agency, it was Russia. And all of us tried to learn Russian. We wanted to get into the Russian operational program. I was successful in doing that. They were the threat. They had the power to destroy us, and we needed to have good penetrations of the Russian government, the Russian intelligence services. So I devoted my career very, very heavily to chasing Russians all around the world and trying to recruit them. And I also had the privilege of serving at our station in Moscow during critical years of the Cold War and running operations against the Russians right there on their turf stealing their secrets. And that's about as good as it gets in our business. And not to get caught. That's pretty important too. <laughs> of course. And how difficult was it to learn Russian as well? I guess I've always had a knack for languages. I think I inherited that from my mother. They, they come easily to me. One of the reasons that I think the CIA recruited me was that I already spoke pretty good French and Russian. Now, the CIA perfected those languages and brought them up to a very, very high level. The CIA also taught me other languages, uh, German and Spanish, for example. But Russian has always been my first love. I still, to this day, 
read it every day for pleasure. I don't have a professional need any longer, but it is a, a lifelong passion of mine. It's a beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful language. Sorry, in the first chapter of your book as well, you said if, if you could go back in time, you would really throw yourself into the language culture, the Chinese language, sorry, and the Chinese culture. Have, have you picked up any Mandarin or Cantonese over the last number of years? No, I have not studied Mandarin. It's pretty daunting, <clears throat> but I do recommend it to my students here at the Bush School. And many of our students are immersing themselves in Mandarin because they know where the action is. And if they can develop an operational proficiency in Mandarin, their careers will be made because Chinese counterintelligence is a big, big part of our future. That's what I would do if I could start all over again. I can't really do that, but I can certainly encourage my students to do that. And they are uh, taking that advice. And I suppose one, one more question on languages as well. I was, I've always wondered as well in regards to the intelligence um, networks and agencies. Pre-9-11, was the Arabic and Middle, Middle East really on the U.S.'s radar or was it post-9-11 where things really picked up? It was definitely on our radar. After the fall of the Soviet Union in 1991, we realigned our, our resources. So counterterrorism and all the major players were definitely a major focus of ours. 9-11, of course, changed everything. And we mobilized. We went to war against uh, terrorism and uh, the Middle Eastern actors. So that was a whole new game at that point. And to this day, that continues, I think, to be our our number one priority, protecting the American people from international Islamic-based fundamentalist terrorism. Um, and then if I just kind of ch change tack a wee bit then, so I suppose within modern culture as well, you've got TV shows, you've got films, you've got books about spies and intelligence as well. Throughout your 31-year career, what would you say makes a good spy or intelligence per personnel? And conversely as well, are there things that you teach at the Bush School which the intelligence community need to take into account so they avoid the mistakes made previously in the past? What I think is required to be a good spy is, first of all, really good character. We probably consider that the number one qualification we're looking for. It sounds ironic that a service which is engaged in lying, cheating, stealing, manipulating is looking for people of solid character, but that's the truth. We expose some very sensitive secrets to our people. We also train them in some techniques that could be very badly abused in the wrong hands. And quite often our people are out on the streets of foreign capitals engaged in operations where they have to make split-second decisions. And we want to make certain that they make a decision which is the right decision, the legal decision, the moral decision. So we have to rely on their internal code in many cases to ensure that that takes place. After character, and once you pass that rigorous standard, we're looking for people who are quick thinkers, people who have a lot of self-confidence. It's very important that they have good interpersonal skills because our business is people. In my side of the business, our number one objective is to find foreigners, to recruit them to become sources for us. That means that you have to be able to read them psychologically, you have to be able to develop them toward recruitment, and you have to be able to come up with a recruitment pitch that is suited to their, their needs, their vulnerabilities. 
And that takes a lot of sensitivity to other people. If you are not a people person, you're probably going to struggle in this career. Obviously, you've got to have an aptitude for foreign languages because we do all of this subtle work in the local languages. We want people who have a high tolerance for risk because this business can be, and often was in our case, a dangerous profession. I would finally say that we need people who can make an upfront rationalization that they will do things in this career that they would not ordinarily do. Mm -hmm. Spying has always been based on deception, manipulation, to some extent coercion. It can be a messy business. It's not always very tidy. We are operating in some really bad neighborhoods around the world. We've got to fight tough, and we do. So people who come into this business have to realize that they will be doing some of those questionable, in the eyes of many people, activities. Now, those of us who did it, like my wife and me, could accept the fact that we would do those things because we believed we were doing them for a greater good. We believe that we were morally justified in using those techniques against our adversaries in the legitimate defense of our country. Where would it be without intelligence? It certainly wouldn't be safe for our country. So we need the intelligence. And that means that we've got to use some, some pretty hardball techniques from time to time. Some people can't make that rationalization, and that's fine. They should do something else. But we spies have to realize that we're going to get our hands dirty, and it's not always going to be pretty. So since you started your career, and um, how much of the world of counterintelligence has changed? Um, are, are clandestine operations harder to undertake due to modern technology now? Uh, or, and on, on a more personal note, do you prefer the old days, or how, how do you find the, the last, say, five or ten years within that community? Technology has actually uh, revolutionized the spy business. I think in many ways it was a lot easier in my day when we didn't face the kinds of threats that we do now. Just think of it. If you're trying to operate overseas in almost any foreign capital, particularly in the ones where we have the highest stakes, there are cameras everywhere. There are sensors everywhere. They have invasive techniques that they can use, listening devices, tracking devices. So it's very, very hard to operate today in those environments. I'm not saying we can't do it, but I'm just saying that technology has been a game changer for us. I think that technology has also, to some extent, made our job easier because we can use those same techniques in counterintelligence against our adversaries. We can monitor them more closely. We can dig into their backgrounds more easily. So it's a, a plus and a minus. Overall, I would think the Western advantage that we have in technology gives us an edge over many countries because we are in the West, the technology leaders. So we can do things now that no other country can begin to do. Just take, for example, things like imagery, satellites, and intercepts of communications. It's mind-boggling what our CIA, your uh, GCHQ, and uh, MI6, and our NSA can do. It's uh, a whole new element that no other country can even come close to matching. Just before I go on to my final question as well, you mentioned the NSA there, and like if we go back to 
I suppose, um, pop culture as well. You always see the FBI, CIA and NSA roles, you know, up against each other and they're not sharing information. Is, was, is that really, would, would that be true to life or does there have to be a sharing of information between those agencies or are they very much closed off within each other? That's not true to life at all. My, my experience has been that that has been grossly exaggerated. It's kind of a media creation. They think they're being sophisticated to say that our problems were because the CIA did not talk to the FBI, that nobody talked to NSA. That's not true at all in my experience. Sure, when you have large organizations with masses of data, there are going to be instances when a piece of data doesn't get to another agency as quickly as it should. But it was not systemic. It was not intentional. And my experience has been that the cooperation has been superb. And that's the way it should be. We are not serving the American people in the intelligence community if we don't work together. So we share our intelligence very, very widely. And that's, uh, I think, one of the real strengths of U.S. intelligence, that we, we have that kind of collegial approach and that we have kind of eliminated the barriers that stood between before be, uh, between cooperation before. I'll mention also, Colin, just in passing, that the cooperation among the allied countries, particularly the five I countries, is also a tremendous strength. We have a force multiplier in the fact that we can count on the resources of our, our British, our Canadian, our Australian, our New Zealand allies in the five I group it is really amazing to see how much we can accomplish together. And that's been a beautiful thing. And my final question before I let you go, do you think a spy from today could be transported back to whenever you began and that they would be successful? And also, do you need a certain set of skills back then that maybe you didn't necessarily have now? I think a spy today could operate very, very comfortably and successfully in any era. I think the qualities that make a good spy are timeless. I think they're universal. As I said before, it basically boils down to people, to recruiting sources. And if you could do it back then, you could do it now and vice versa. So no, I don't think that there's any real barrier to effectiveness for spies. The technology, sure, it gives you some advantages today, but the reality of spying is, is that it is kind of time-tested, and it is basically a, an intelligence officer identifying a target, a foreign target who's got access to information, identifying what the needs of that target are, what the vulnerabilities are, working on those needs, developing a good, successful pitch, and then handling that source successfully so as not to be detected by the opposition's counterintelligence. That's been that way ever since, I think, human history has uh, had spies. And, of course, spying is biblical. It goes way, way back. But certainly in the modern era, the discipline of being a spy, the skill set of being a good spy, I don't think have trained, changed dramatically at all. Just the, the technology has, essentially? Technology has definitely changed. And I said it's a two-edged sword. It uh, is, is good for us in many ways because of our superiority. But we have to be aware that there are uh, threats against us now from the technology of our adversaries that we had, had to deal with before. That is fantastic, Jim. Thank you very much. I, I really appreciate your, appreciate your time because I know it's very, it's very valuable at the minute. So th thanks very much for coming on and, and chatting with me today. 
You're welcome, Colin. I hope that was useful. Thanks very much to Professor Olson for taking the time out of his busy schedule to speak to me. If you would like more from his story, I highly recommend his books To Catch a Spy, The Art of Counterintelligence and Fair Play, The Moral Dilemmas of Spine. Both are available on Amazon. Pieces of History is written and produced by me, Colm McGrath. If you would like to get involved in the show, you can leave comments and show suggestions on Twitter and Instagram, and I'm also on Facebook at Pieces of History. Thanks for listening.